Welcome. This is Dr. Owen Anderson. We're looking today at Benjamin Franklin's autobiography and specifically at chapter nine, his plan for attaining moral perfection. Now, as we read the chapter, the chapter title, and we know anything about Franklin, we already know we have humor involved. The idea that you could attain moral perfection is humorous. Initially, it might make you think, how could anyone believe that they could attain moral perfection? And yet, it's not simply mocking. He's actually going to provide a kind of plan, which has a lot of benefits. But one of the particular imperfections of his that he's going to come to at the end is pride. And so the title itself is poking fun at his own pride. So he says, it was about this time, continuing from his previous chapter, I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I'd wish to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclination, custom, or company might lead me to. As I knew or thought I knew what was right and wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. So interesting here. Let me toggle to the notes. He believes. He knows the difference. Between right and wrong. And therefore, with this knowledge. He can always choose the one and avoid the other. And that's important. I mean, this idea, well, this chapter really embodies, even down to the present, common American beliefs about morality and religion. We'll see in a minute. If you know the difference, just do it. Just do the, the one that's correct. Now he says, while my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habits took advantage of inattention and inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. I concluded at length that the mere speculative conviction that it was, under our, it was our interest to be completely virtuous was not sufficient to prevent our slipping and that contrary habits must be broken and good ones acquired before we can have any dependence on a steady, uniform rectitude of conduct. And so because of this, he develops an order, a method, He develops a method to form this habit. Now, what's interesting is that he, he says initially knowledge is enough. So knowledge was not sufficient due to inattention and bad habits. So then his solution is develop good habits. And what's the way that solves it is both the habit part, but also the whole point of habits are that you don't have to pay attention to them. It's on automatic and you just do them. 
So he, he lists the virtues, the moral virtues I had. For the sake of clarity, of clearness, he names them and explains them. And so let's go through them. Let me put this down in the notes, though. So he believes morality is being virtuous. The inability for knowledge, or I should say for his knowledge, to change him does not make him doubt and critically think about what he knows. Perhaps he doesn't know what he thinks he does. Instead, he keeps his definition of virtue and morality and goes ahead with uh, listing the virtues. I'm going to read them for you. Temperance in food and drink. Self-control in how much you eat and how much you drink. That's number one. Silence. Not speaking all the time. And there's a footnote here. If you follow down, it says avoiding Twitter. Your opinion doesn't have to go out to the whole world every time one comes into your mind. And avoid trifling conversation. Third, order. Let all your things have their places and let each part of your business have its time. Have a well-ordered life. Not just a chaotic life. From waking up to falling asleep, who knows what's going to happen. Instead, no, you get up, you have a, a plan. In fact, he's the one who's said to have invented the morning ritual. Common people will speak about, what's your morning ritual? Well, that's back to Benjamin Franklin. You have certain things you do in the morning to prepare yourself for the day besides just breaking the first one by guzzling a gallon of coffee. Third, resolution. Resolve to perform what you ought and resolve, perform without fail what you resolve. This is also like being a person of your word. You said you'll do it, do it. For example, by signing up for a class, by implication, you're saying you'll keep the syllabus. Study, do well on tests. So actually do that as the semester unfolds. Frugality, not wasting your money. Industry, don't lose time. To be industrious is not simply hardworking, so to speak, but it means you're not wasting your time. You're getting done the things you need done. There's only so much time you'll be surprised how, how quickly life goes. And I think, well, I was just a, a kid the other day. Now I'm old and used up, put out the pasture. Oh, wait, this is getting too uh, specific about me, huh? Sincerity. Use no harmful deceit. Don't be a deceptive person. Justice. Don't wrong others. Moderation. Avoid extremes, kind of like number one. Cleanliness. Tolerate no uncleanliness in body, 
clothes or habitation. Today, that's uh, what's her name? Uh, Marie Kondo from Japan. You could buy her book about how to clean your house. And it's uh, be clean and organized. Tranquility. Be not disturbed at trifles or accidents common or unavoidable. What, what agitates your mind throughout the day? And you look back and you realize, well, a lot of the things you're agitated about had nothing to do with you. They're not within your control. Remember the serenity prayer? Just be concerned about things in your control, not out of your control. And then chastity and humility get short shrift here. No descriptions. Chastity doesn't mean never having sex. It means being faithful. So if you're single, it means being faithful to marriage. If you're single, you're not married. So you're not having sex with anyone. If you are married, you're only having sex with your spouse. So it doesn't mean, oh, I have, Benjamin Franklin was chaste. He never, no, he was married, had kids. In fact, I'm not going to go into the stories about him and how well he did on number 12. But he does have it on there. Humility. He's going to come back to this one. And then this is what stood out. Let me, let me put this down on our notes. 13 of them, beginning with temperance and ending with humility. Then he says, imitate Jesus and Socrates. And here we have encapsulated American popular religion. Or maybe could even call it civic religion. The idea is that these were great persons who were virtuous and persecuted for their virtue to the point of being killed. And so those are the kind of people you want to imitate the great benefactors of humankind. And we still look to heroes with that same narrative. And in what sense were they benefactors, which is a form of saying, did good to humankind? Well, they uh, taught us virtue and were willing to be persecuted for it. So this, his understanding of Jesus and Socrates fits into his understanding of virtues. These are the two virtuous ones. That's why it comes right after that claim. But think about, in, in fact, how greatly, vastly different these are. Unless you do what I just did and narrow them down to just a virtuous guy, made others mad, got killed. Right? Jesus, there is one God Before Abraham was, I am. This is the uh, name of God. 
given to Moses. So when they asked Jesus, who are you? The Jews asked him that. This is his answer. He is claiming to be the I am. And then uh, crucified, dead, buried, raised again. Socrates, a polytheist who thought, we don't know what we think we know, and taught a method of critical questions to find out if we know or only think we know, died a uh, polytheist last thought was to a uh, sacrifice yod. So here on the one hand, we have, let me add in here, taught eternal life is knowing God. So on the one hand, though the only similarities are the leadership of their respective cities, Athens and Jerusalem, one of them killed. The actual content is as vastly different as you can get. How would you imitate them both beyond just that superficial sense? And we'll see that really what, what uh, this, this describes Benjamin Franklin, especially this method of critical questions to find out that we don't really know, he liked that. But then we have Jesus making all kinds of strong knowledge claims, which is what got him in trouble with the Pharisees. So the American popular religion relies on only having a vague, superficial, and, and mostly inaccurate understanding of characters like this. So you might ask somebody, uh, let's say, I love Jesus. Oh, you. Yahweh? No, no, this guy who lived in history and taught political reform. Two different things. All right, now he gets to a more specific method. My intention being to acquire a habit of all these virtues. Now, in the back of our minds, we can ask why. Why would you want to keep these virtues? He'll tell us. I judge it will not be well. It would be well not to distract my attention by attempting the whole at once, but to fix on them one at a time. And once you've mastered it, you can move on to the other. So he gave them this order to go through them. And he uses advice from Pythagoras in his golden verses to daily do daily examination. I contrived the following method for examination. That's where you hear Socrates. The unexamined life is not worth living. So it makes a little book for self-examination. And each of the virtues is here. The days of the week are here. And he keeps a note of when he is able to keep these virtues. 
that be a good, uh, you could make the Ben Franklin app. It's a journaling app. And you use this app in order to keep track of how well you're doing in virtues. Not interesting. It's pretty much the exact opposite of Tinder, right? Like if you had to think of like, how do I even make this app? Well, just invert all the values there and you'll have these virtues, right? Did he know about that back then? No, but similar things have always been around. And then he, he uh, talks about how he was doing, how he would mark them. And he uh, uses a line from Cato. Here will I hold if there's a power above us and that there is all nature cries aloud through all her works. So he believes there is some power above us and nature shows us that, that he must delight in virtue and that which he delights in must be happy. There's his argument from Cato. I'll even move it over here because this can be undone in the next hundred years. So it's a kind of continuation of classical Roman or Greek thought. There is a higher power. He wants us to be virtuous and that will be rewarded with happiness. Now, this is not a New Testament class or an Old Testament class, but this is completely different than what is taught in Scripture. You might say, well, there's a psalm here that says God uh, approves of the righteous. But righteousness begins in the love of God. And then in repenting of sin. And that's noticeably absent from Franklin. When he fails... There's no sense of his need for repentance before God. It's more like, well, I'm finite. I'm doing the best I can. I'm growing each day. What more do you expect of me? So why be virtuous? It is the best guarantee of happiness. Now, just to alert you to this, that was a, a rigorous debate between the Stoics and the Epicureans. And it wasn't settled between them. So when we find the Apostle Paul going to Athens to talk to the philosophers, we still find Epicureans and Stoics mentioned debating. What's the best road to happiness? All right, now. Then he quotes uh, Cicero and Solomon. And he conceives of God to be the fountain of wisdom. I thought it right and necessary to solicit his assistance for attaining it. Um, sp speaking of wisdom here, Solomon, he, he says they're the same, wisdom or virtue. That's part of the question. Is that true? Length of days is in the hands of wisdom. Solomon says, get wisdom above all else. But you remember where Solomon says wisdom begins? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And that's not really mentioned at all here in, in Franklin. 
So conceiving God to be the fountain of wisdom, I formed the following little prayer, which was prefixed to my tables of examination. Oh, powerful goodness, bountiful father, merciful guide, increase in me that wisdom which discovers my truest interest. Strengthen my resolutions to perform that what wisdom dictates. Accept my kind offices to thy other children as the only return in my power for thy continual favors toward me. And he also used this one sometimes. Father of light and life, thou good supreme. Oh, teach me what is good. Teach me thyself, etc. So contrast these with the Lord's Prayer. Teach me to be wise. I pay you back by helping others with the Lord's Prayer. Which you may or may not know. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and then forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Repentance of sin. Here, it's more just kind of like education. You can be educated into wisdom. And self-improved into the needed wisdom. No repentance or atonement. I'll say vicarious atonement. Which means payment by another is needed. And that's really how a lot of American education or of religion is going to come down to the present. Sure, there's some higher power. He's good. We don't know a lot about him. He wants us to behave ourselves. And once you get past those details, who cares? You dunk adults. They sprinkle babies. Who cares? Are you virtuous? So the American religion, there is some higher power who is good, but that's about all we know. He wants us to be moral, and then he will reward us with a happy afterlife. So when people say religion, this is what they mean. And when they say, I'm not religious, they mean, I don't believe that. That's still down to us today, present day. Sometimes it's called moral. One scholar called it moral therapeutic deism. You got to be moral. It, it gives you therapy for how, you know, your, your difficult feelings in life. That's what he's doing with his self-improvement. And uh, it's deism. God is there, but not active in your life. So here's what happens. What happens to this morality if there is no God? It would dissipate. Virtue is no longer guaranteed happiness in the afterlife. Right? Because there is no afterlife. 
when you're dead, you're dead. So we'll see that come up. I'm, pre I'm anticipating the 19th century. This is the uh, essence of later we'll find Nietzsche is speaking about. God is dead. You write your own morality. Popularized with any way you want it. That's the way you need it. Or do what you will is the whole of the law. Because there is no God. And Benjamin Franklin will say, uh, Franklin's reliance on nature will be challenged by Darwinism. The supposed order you see in nature can be explained without God. You don't need God for that. Although, I mean, Darwin himself is this kind of a person. He believes in moral therapeutic deism religion also. He speaks about God and the origin of species. But that's just like the, the finger that knocks over the first domino. After that, all the order you see is explainable by survival of the fittest. All right, let's keep going here on Darwin or on Franklin. So again, uh, order gave him some of the most difficulty. And so he shows us how it breaks down his day here. The morning ritual. He asks himself when I wake up, what good shall I do this day? He rises and is cleanly, thinks over the day's business. And then he has work, eight to five work day. Notice he's up at 5 a.m. He's not waking up at 7.30, rolling the gin bottle off his bed, staggering to the bathroom to wash his face. No, he's uh, up early, morning ritual, breakfast, cleanliness, eight to five work. And then in the evening, reflecting on what good did I do today? And then at nighttime, he goes from 10 to four sleeping. So there's a lot of benefit. I mean, I think this is a very beneficial way to what it's one of many possible beneficial ways to order your day. You'll find great productivity comes out of simply having an order to your day. You'll be amazed by it. And so he entered upon a plan for self-examination. I want to write that down. A plan for how to order his day and the overarching goal of self-examination. By that, he means what good will I do these virtues? Now think about how, yeah, by what good will I do, which is these virtues? What good have I done to others to help them with these virtues? And so he says his order is what gave him the most trouble to, to learn this kind of approach to time. And he was a journeyman printer and he wasn't exactly able to order his life like that because of the demands of that work. And so order is one of the things he was especially difficult to acquire. He'd not been early accustomed to it. And that that's, makes a big difference. Were you trained this way in your youth? 
you'll find if you think about your life that most of what you do now is simply a reflection on your training in your youth. Were you given good training or bad training? And that'll come out in your early adulthood. And that's what he'll want to reflect on himself and change. In the earlier part of the autobiography, he, he told us about that stuff. We just haven't read that right now. So he's uh, telling us a story here. You'll often find that he has stories intermingled in his work, which is what makes him interesting writer. Uh, and he concludes from this analogy about an ax that a benevolent man should allow a few faults in himself to keep his friends in countenance. A speckled ax is best. That's a quote that I've seen before from him. Um, the uh, not perfectly shined. Uh, the, the smith is having his friend turn the wheel while he grinds his ax. And have you heard that before that you have an ax to grind? And you're requiring your friend to turn the wheel while you do this until it gets to your standard perfection. Saying, well, for the thoughtfulness about this other person, says the smith consented to grind it bright for him if he would turn the wheel. He turned while the smith pressed the broad face of the axe hardly and heavily on the stone, which made the turning of it very fatiguing. The man came every now and then from the wheel to see how the work went on, and at length would take the axe as it was without grinding further. No, the smith said, turn on, turn on. We shall have it bright by and by. As yet, it is only speckled. So you think, well, this guy, he's turning the wheel. Do I need it to get that bright? Or can I live with some of these speckles? So he says, in truth, I found myself incorrigible with respect to order. And now I'm grown old and my memory bad. I feel very sensibly the want of it. So that's one thing he says too, is that because he had such a good memory, he didn't really think he needed order. Like if you had someone say that like, their desk is a mess, but see, I know where everything is. So you're relying on your memory. As that starts to go in old age, now you don't know where everything is. Whereas if you had an order, I have these three trays, inbox, outbox, and miscellaneous. Everything goes where it's supposed to do. You don't have to rely on your memory anymore. So he says, my list of the virtues at first had only 12. Remember the last one was, it was humility. But a Quaker friend, having kindly informed me that I was generally thought proud, that my pride showed itself frequently in conversations, that I was not content with being in the right when discussing any point, but was overbearing and rather insolent, of which he convinced me by mentioning several instances, I deemed endeavoring to cure myself if I could of this vice or folly among the rest, and I added humility. Now that describes a lot of us. You have to be right and you'll keep pressing your point beyond what you should. And that makes you overbearing in your conversation. People don't wanna be around you. Uh, so his friend points this out to him, that he's proud. And so he adds humility in. And he says, I could not boast of much success in acquiring the reality of that virtue. So here's, he's, he's being a little silly here. 
I couldn't actually become humble because he really likes himself. But I had to be okay with the appearance of humility to my friend. So in, in your mind, you might think I'm right and I can argue you into it, but you don't do that because you know how the other person will take it. So he gave only the appearance of wisdom. Now he's spoken earlier too about the natural inclinations. And these habits are an attempt to overcome our natural inclinations. Remember, there were a couple of reasons he gave why his knowledge of good and evil was not sufficient. And instead, habit and natural inclinations are pushing him often to do what is wrong. So it's interesting, he has here, uh, having mentioned a great and extensive project which I had conceived, it seems proper that some account should be here given of that project and its object. Its first rise in my mind appears in the following little paper, Observations on My Reading History. So this is just an example of how he kept notes to himself while he's reading. And he can go back to those notes. Imagine having like notes from your teenage self, like a journal up through your 60-year-old self that you could reflect back on. Again, not just relying on your memory. Oh, I'll remember it. Well, probably not. So you have a notes in a journal. These are more examples of how he's, he's giving his, uh, applying those virtues. And he concludes this. Resolve in my mind to be undertaker hereafter, undertaken hereafter, when my circumstances should afford me necessary leisure, I put down from time to time on pieces of paper, such thoughts as occur to me respecting this. Most of these are lost, but I find one purporting to be the substance of an intended creed. So here is his creed. And I think we'll find this reflects much of American religiosity. There is one God who made all things. He governs the world by his providence. He ought to be worshipped by adoration, prayer, and thanksgiving. But that the most acceptable service of God is doing good to man. So, so far, you say, well, he does say providence, so maybe it's not deism, but we'd have to look at the details. How is God involved in the world? And although you are worshipping God, you don't just become a church hypocrite. You actually go out and do good things for people. And those good things, that by that he means these virtues. And then he believes there's an immortal soul, which means that you do have an afterlife. And that God punishes vice and rewards virtue. This is generally what Americans would still think. High percentage. Not each individual one. Or here, put it this way. If you were to ask Americans who identify as religious, they'd probably agree to this. And then the details this is the uh, common religious creed and the various details of particular religions don't matter. or they're just up to personal taste. 
So we want to test that as we get into the 19th century now and see how, how broadly, how many challenges can this withstand? Do you notice anything that's lacking here? You might say, this seems so good so far. Zero repentance. No acknowledgement of a mediator. What I mean is, I already mentioned the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us. And then it ends with, well, well, Christ says this later, not the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but he says later, ask in my name and it will be given to you. So often you end with saying, in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. You're recognizing the need for him as vicarious atonement. So those aren't in here. That's noticeable from when we studied the Puritans like Jonathan Edwards. Significant change. So he, he speaks here about some of the benefits of being industrious, a hard worker, free from debt, being frugal. Debt exposes you to be a kind of slave to your debtors. So it's worth not having any debt. So there's a lot of uh, prudence. That's a good way to put this as we wrap up. Prudence is confused with wisdom. It may be a part of wisdom, but is not the whole or even the first part. And much of what Franklin is thinking about is prudence. And it has natural benefits in this life. Living this way, you'll probably have, uh, you probably will have be freer from trouble if you live this way. So what, what caused this significant shift in just one generation from Edwards to Franklin in uh, beliefs about religion. Part of what we wanna study in American religious history. What accounts for this? And the more influential view to the present is Franklin's. If you mention Jesus, it's the way that Franklin mentioned Jesus, a great teacher with some good examples, not the way Jonathan Edwards would have spoken of Jesus, which is as the eternal son of God who died for your sins. So there's been a shift in this, and we want to try to figure that out. How did that occur? Uh, 